Welcome everyone to the podcast. It's no longer called the Sodomites Guide to Reality. I don't know what it's going to be called, so for right now, it's just a podcast. I'm very excited about today's conversation as I speak with someone whose work I enjoy very much. I think he's a much-needed voice in academia. He's the evolutionary biologist Colin Wright. Anyways, I hope you enjoy the video. All right then, welcome ladies and gentlemen to the podcast. Uh, I'm pleased to be joined today by Colin Wright, an evolutionary biologist from Penn State University. Uh, I've stated before that um, I, I thought my video on Yasmin Muhammad's book unveiled how Western liberals empower radical Islam. I thought that was going to be my most controversial video, but I think this one's going to take the cake. Um, now, I think you're one of those guys that became popular predominantly through Twitter. At least that's how I ran, that's how I ran into you, at least. Is, is that correct to say? Yeah, I guess Twitter was sort of secondary to that. So I was I was on Twitter, but only was sitting around maybe like a, just a couple hundred followers until I wrote my first Colette article. Mm -hmm. And then I went from about 300 followers to maybe like 2,000 in just like a couple days oh, wow. uh, for my first article. So yeah, so the, it was Colette that kind of gave me the initial signal boost. And then since then, I've just kind of um, through a couple other articles on Quillette, but I guess mainly Twitter since then has been kind of where I've, I've gained more of a um, a reach, I guess. Yeah, you're slightly at a, above 12,000, is it right now? Somewhere around there? Yeah. Yeah, there's a few mm -hmm. people that have managed to do that. Have you ever heard of Solonium? I think that's how you pronounce her. Sort of. A, so. Yeah, she's um, a geneticist, I think. A bit of, she used to be sort of Steven Pinker's bulldog, I guess. Mm. In a way, but. Okay. Yeah, so it's great to finally have you on here. I, I finally have my first official uh, scientist on the podcast, so that's going to be a fun conversation. And I, I first heard about yeah, I first heard about you when you were vocally arguing about the whole trans women in sports uh, situation, and that's something that we can definitely get into. And then you also talked about the conflation between gender and sex, uh, which is something that that's something that I always raise my eyebrows at because it's one of the most it's one of the strangest conversations that I see taking place online because to me it seems like it's nothing more than a game about semantics. How do we choose to define gender? How do we choose to define sex? Mm -hmm. And whether or not we want to associate pronouns with that. So I guess my first question to you would be, how would you define or distinguish the difference between gender and sex? And would you prefer that we associate pronouns more with gender or more with sex? Yeah, so I guess how I sort of first came onto the the question of the difference between sex and gender. This was several years ago when, you know, at first um, people tend to use gender, I guess, kind of interchangeably with sex, or at least that's how it used to be. When people say, like, when you're filling out a form, it asks, you know, what your gender, and people usually says male or female. So that was kind of my just historical idea of what was meant by gender. It was sort of synonymous with, with one's biological sex. Uh, but then this sort of took on sort of a new meaning and I was in some friend circles and they had, they were talking about gender and they were clearly talking about it in sort of a different way, had to do with someone's, with, with your identity. Um, and then, so then there was sort of this split and I was on board with it at first. And the split was that, you know, your gender identity is sort of how you, how you feel about yourself. It's like your uh, subjective um, brain state in relation to your sex, how, how, how you feel about your body. So you can have the gender of, a woman or man, but your biological sex can be sort of mismatched from that. Um, and we see this, you know, with trans people, for instance, they identify as, you know, the opposite sex. 
Uh, and I was, I was on board with that. I was like, okay, we don't need two different words for, you know, saying the same thing. Maybe gender. Yeah. We can make gender refer to your state of mind. And, you know, as long as we reserve biological sex for, you know, your actual biology. Uh, and then the conversation started shifting again, where I hear people were kind of using the word biological sex sort of as synonymous with gender. And they were kind of going back and forth between using sex and gender interchangeably again. And then it became sort of the rule that you couldn't even say that these individuals were biologically male or female. And that's sort of where I kind of drew a line in the sand. It's like, no, we still need to have words that, that describe biology uh, separate from, you know, how one identifies with themselves. So I don't really have my own definition of gender. I kind of just wait till see what people say when they're talking about gender. I try to understand what people mean when they say it. And as far as I can tell it, it means so many different things to a lot of different people. It can either mean just like the subjective feeling that you have in relation to your sex. Uh, some uh, gender critical feminists, when they talk about uh gender, they kind of talk about the societal norms or expectations that society has, sort of social expectations that people attach to one's biological sex. Then you just have sort of the social justice idea that it's it's just an identity, it has nothing to do with really dysphoria, but it's just, you know, everyone has this internal gender identity and sort of more Tumblr aspect of it too, where, you know, you can just, this identifies whatever you want and we have those like, you know, hundreds of genders that are being made, you know, Every every so often, you can just pick from this laundry list of genders that you identify with. Uh, and so, yeah, that's sort of how I came across to really being very critical of this this idea of sex and gender. So I, I pretty much just make the split along the lines of your biological sex refers to you know, your your role in reproduction, whether your, your potential actual or past ability to, you know, create... Um, sperm or eggs, you know, has to do with your, uh, the types of genitals that you have, your reproductive organs, how you've developed. And so that's something that's immutable. And gender, you know, that can, I pretty much just let anyone else define, I let them tell me what they mean by it. And then if I find any problems with what I think they're doing, if they're conflating it with sex or something, then I'll usually interject and, you know, uh, talk about it that way. Yeah. And it, you know, one of the reasons why it was so strange to me why people were having this conversation about gender is because they almost seem to be defining it as synonymous with personality traits. And it's strange that there even has to be a conversation surrounding around that. So when people say that we should associate pronouns with gender, right? So the they, thems, non-binary people that don't associate with perceived stereotypes when it comes to sex roles, that was always strange to me why we need to have a completely new area of, I guess, you know, personal perception, I guess, or something like that, or identity. I'm not really sure what, what the point is in trying to create new pronouns for that are. Because I always associate a pronouns with sex, right? So when I refer to someone as he or she, I don't do so thinking in the back of my head that they should have specific um, gender roles in society or sex roles in society. I'm not, that's not baggage that I'm adding to, to the pronouns that I'm using. It's just a quick an uh, easy way to refer to someone based on their sex. And I can understand if someone would want to use they-them pronouns when it comes to intersex. I mean, that's perfectly fine. But when someone is just using them, and I've come across many people who do this, using them strictly because they don't like the way that they would be associated with, you know, if they're a woman, 
they don't like the idea that they're being associated with feminine traits or feminine values um, and so they just refer to them as non-binary um, that blows my mind and especially since when you pull people the vast majority of them would associate pronouns with sex not with gender or not with um, societal role that they expect out of you so it seems futile and really just not pragmatic at all to try to be convincing all of society that we should associate pronouns with gender rather than associate them with sex and uh, an interesting thing that I, I got into this argument also with someone else where one of the things that you'll often see in the sort of intersectional community or in the intersectional academia is that they're trying to redefine racism in a way that they want it to include structural power, institutional power. So that's what some people say that black people can't be racist against white people because of this. And that is by definition uh, different from the way that most people view it. You can go on dictionary.com, the Webster's Dictionary, it's that you know, the, the, the definition has always been believing that one race is superior to the other. But if they're going to go about changing the definition of racism to suit this new viewpoint, um, I think that's fine. I think language is more of a descriptive trait than a prescriptive one. But if that's the case, then how would you make the argument that we should not get, not change the definition of gender? Because one of the things that they always say is that, you know, we're not changing the definition of gender. People just view gender differently, but gender has always been defined as a role in society or basically synonymous with personality traits. If that's the case, why would you advocate for changing the definition of the former but not changing the definition of the latter? So it seems very selective in the way that people are choosing to view these things. So um, what, what would you prefer to associate pronouns with more? Like, like should we associate pronouns more with sex? Yeah, so I've always... Oh, sorry. Kind of, you there? Yeah, sorry. Uh, just associate pronouns oh. more with sex or gender. Yeah, I mean, I've always associated them with one's biological sex because I've always used pronouns as the way that people identify other people. You know, not the way I identify uh, how people identify themselves. For instance, like I'm more than happy to use someone's preferred pronouns if they actually have you know gender dysphoria or something like that because uh, I don't want to contribute to their their sense of dysphoria. So I'm happy to use pronouns that people would like to use, but I think in, in my mind and most people's minds that we use, we use gendered pronouns to refer to someone's biological sex because that's something that you can clearly observe from someone at a glance almost 100% of the time or very close to it. Uh, you can't actually see someone's gender identity. You can't look into their mind. Uh, you know, anyone could have any type of identity and you would never know until you ask them. Uh, and this doesn't seem very like a pragmatic way to go about just like asking everybody how they would like to be identified um, before you enter a conversation. Whereas we can just make one rule and say, no, when we, when we refer to someone as he or she, we're referring to their biological sex. And that's, I just, I just don't see why that wouldn't be something that we can all sort of agree on doing and then make exceptions for people who, who have a, you know, who, have, who are dys dysphoric and who this becomes a, a problem for, um, in society, which, and I'm more than happy to, to use these, uh, these pronouns in these, in these situations. Um, you also mentioned sort of the, the way the language has sort of changed and hijacked to some degree, uh, to sort of fit this narrative you mentioned, like how racism is no longer defined as, you know, just, uh, prejudice towards a group based on their, their race. And now gender is sort of defined as one's gender identity rather than their biological sex. And I just I think these are, at least for the 
for the biological sex one. They're very regressive definitions because I've never, I, I thought the whole point was to reject these gender roles and not look at a woman and because she's female, assume that they're going to be submissive and, you know, all these other traits, you know, that people tend to associate with, with being female. Now, it's, it's not to say that there aren't like certain constellations of traits that, that aren't uh, correlated with being males or females. There's pretty striking personality differences at a population level between males or females. But this should never, you should never use these population statistics averages and then say, well, because this is true of the population, then it's true of a specific individual because we have a lot of overlap between males and females with regard to any trait. You can have females that have very masculine personality traits and males with very feminine personality traits. So it seems sort of weird. It's like the, these far left people, they've, it's sort of just, I guess, allowed these, what I see as very conservative definitions of, of, of sex and gender, namely, uh, you know, these regressive stereotypes that are associated with sex, they sort of just allowed that to be the definition of male and female or man and woman now. <laughs> and I always thought this was what we were against. And this is sort of why I'm also against, you know, referring to myself as, as cis. And I, I kind of reject the whole cis trans thing because, you know, I'm, I call myself a man. I don't like identify as a man. I just happen to be biologically male, but when I say that, I'm not saying that I identify with the stereotypes that are associated with my sex, because I certainly don't. I have, I'm feminine on some traits, I'm masculine on some. I'm not like a perfect stereotype of masculinity. And very few men are perfect stereotypes, if any. And very few females are perfect stereotypes of femininity. So because someone is cis doesn't mean that they're just accepting, you know, a submissive role in society. Uh, and that, so I just think the whole conversation of cis and trans is sort of it's very regressive and, and conservative and ultimately boils down to accepting stereotypes um, with respect to your sex. And I think is what we should be rejecting and just evaluating people on an individual basis. Mm -hmm. And it's strange to see that these are the same people that originally were so ardently against labels. They say, I hate labels, don't label me. Yeah. And now it's, yeah. it's an obsession. And I really hate that. I think some prominent intellectuals are dropping the ball on this conversation. Um, I, I would 100% agree with just if someone tells me to refer to them with their non-binary pronouns, that, that's fine. I, I really, it really does not matter to me at all on a societal level, on a, a sort of a just being polite. But when I was watching the uh, Daily Wire interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson in it, you know, I always have to put a pin in this because whenever people hear, you know, someone take the stances that we're taking, they immediately think that we're conservatives or on the right. And like, I'm... I, I promise you, I, I'm not interested in the culture war that the right is having. I, I'm not interested in it. But I do think, you know, when I was watching Neil deGrasse Tyson have a conversation with Ben Shapiro, and Ben Shapiro told, brought this up, and he said, you know, part of being in a free society is that we really shouldn't care the way that people live their lives on their own. So if someone wants to be referred to as something else, why does that matter to you? And I would say, I don't think it should matter legally speaking, but I do think we need to be intellectually honest with this. And whereas Neil deGrasse Tyson would originally say when it comes to creationism, I'm more interested in the science. I'm not interested in what you have to, you know, what your feelings w w would say. You also have to take, you have, you have to use that same logic when it comes to this topic. And 
as I said, I'm perfectly content with referring to people as whatever they want to refer to themselves as. But that's not to say that we should be blocking the honest conversation about it, about whether or not what they're saying is actually true. And people like Sean Carroll, people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, whom both are my heroes, right? Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson was one of the reasons why I wanted to become a physicist in the first place, and Sean Carroll was the person who propelled me in the direction of cosmology. It's strange to see them drop the ball on this because you would expect scientists, especially deterministic scientists, to be more interested in what is true rather than in what society wants to be true for the sake of preserving people's feelings. And so, and, it, and, it, you, know, and you usually see that trend generally in academia, and you're one of the few people in contemporary academia that doesn't abide by the social justice dogma. Not just that, but you're actually vocal against it. And I've heard countless stories from people that tell me, you know, so many professors, so many academics walk up to me and tell me, you know, I agree with arguing against this whole social justice and wokeness craze, but I'm just too scared to say anything for my job. Mm -hmm. But you're not. Are you concerned at all about what the ramifications on your career could be because you're vocal about this? Oh, yeah. I mean, big time. So, yeah, it was a huge tormenting process for me to decide to actually come out and write my first Quillette article. Um, because, you know, I'm in, I've been in a kind of a precarious position where I have sort of entered the sciences, you know, how long ago? Ten years ago when I started um, my undergrad, maybe a little bit more. And the reason I wanted to become a scientist and a professor was because I thought that, well, I loved evolutionary biology and I just wanted to be able to both push, you know, the frontiers of science and, you know, be doing awesome research at the, you know, pushing human knowledge forward and also being, I thought, being a professor around other scientists and on a university would just be sort of the best best place to to just be in a, a, an intellectual, to be able to play with ideas with brilliant people from multiple departments. And so that's sort of why I started down the path of, I want to be an academic. I want to be a scientist. I want to be, I want to, I want to work at universities for the rest of my life. Uh, and then the sort of the reality kind of hits more and more where you get into grad school and then you're going to have um, faculty members that might start following you on social media. And then you don't want to anger faculty members. They're on your committee. They have control over whether you graduate and things like that. You don't want to anger them. So you kind of start self-censoring a little bit here. And you, you won't quite post the controversial things you might have posted on Facebook or something back in the day. Like I used to post a lot of stuff on uh, intelligent design and creationism. And that was, that was perfectly fine because this, you know, the universities are very left-wing. Uh, and so there's no social cost for me to, you know, really vehemently argue against these sort of right-wing movements. Um, and so I kind of, over the course of being in grad school, I self-censored more and more, uh, just sort of waiting, saying, like, you know, once I get a postdoc, maybe I'll, I'll stop self-censoring about this stuff so much. And then, then I finally got a postdoc, and I moved out here to Penn State, and then it was, well, now I'm applying for, for faculty positions, and like, maybe, well, maybe I'll, I'll stop self-censoring once I get a faculty position. Well, you know, once I get a faculty position somewhere, if I get one, then there's five to six years before you get tenure. And so you're going to need to self-censor even more because you don't want to sacrifice, you know, being uh, your, your chances of getting tenure. And then I talked to a lot of tenured professors and they're saying, well, tenure is not even going to save you if 
if people are determined on getting you ousted from the university. And so I just sort of had to take this, I took this long look and I realized that, well, I'm, I really refuse to self-censor for another, you know, I don't know how much longer maybe doing a postdoc could be a year, could be two, three, and then six more years for, you know, until I get tenure somewhere. And so I just realized this wasn't a trade-off I wanted to do. And I thought, how silly is this that I'm a biologist and I can't say something as uncontroversial as that biological sex is a real thing. <laughs> and, you know, uh, males and females are pretty distinct. You know, 90, 99.98% of individuals are unambiguously male or female. And that a trans individual is usually always male or female to the extent that they're not intersex. And these are just uncontroversial things to say. And I just felt like it was insane that I couldn't, I didn't feel comfortable saying these things because of the backlash I'd get on social media whenever I even just like took a little step in that direction. And so I had, I, I kind of wrote my quote article, but I didn't release it for a while. I just kind of sat there. I wanted to submit it there. My advisor I was talking to, he said, you know, probably, probably should submit it maybe anonymously if you submit it at all. And I had another mentor saying like, well, don't even submit this thing at all because it'll be, somehow get traced back to you and it could ruin your career. And I just realized that this wasn't a game I wanted to play. I just didn't want to, I didn't want to have to self-censor. I, I wasn't willing to give up that aspect because that's the reason I be, went down this path to be an academic in the first place. And so it's being an academic means that I can't think and speak freely on topics where my expertise comes in and is, is relevant, then this isn't a job that I want to do. And so I've started just speaking my mind on these issues and, and, uh, I do worry that it's going to hurt my, my potential for getting a job. I mean, I've, I've since gone private on Twitter. I don't know if you've known the reason to that, but somebody went on uh, one of the biggest job boards in my field, the Eco Evo Jobs Wiki, where there's hundreds of people in my field. And, you know, ecology and evolutionary biology, uh, you know, it's, it's a large field, but this is like the main job board. Every every job that's posted goes on there. And so postdocs, grad students, uh, professors who are looking to move universities, they go here every day. There's hundreds, if not thousands of people that go to it every day. Somebody uploaded a job because uh, you can just enter in a job and it will show up on the very front page. And the, all the job title said was, Colin Wright is a white supremacist. Don't hire him. And then that was sat there for several hours. I have no idea how long it was. I got a message from the person who's in charge of the job board. They ended up deleting it after it was there for several hours. But I got emails from people that I know who mentioned, who told me that, like, have you seen this on there? Um, I Someone at my university contacted me because they saw this. There's no telling how many people saw this thing on there. So there's there's just, there's people out there who are trying to just, I guess, sully my reputation any means necessary. Because race isn't even a topic that I talk about. Like, you know, it would make more sense if someone wrote something like Colin writes a transphobe, even though that's not true. But I do talk about trans issues. So, you know, maybe someone could misinterpret what I'm saying is that, but to go to the, you know, Collins are white supremacist, like that's not even anything I've ever even, I've never discussed race whatsoever. So they're just going for, going for the kill shot. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I do, to kind of come back to your question, I do definitely worry about my ability to, to get a job here. That's so, and given that my, my, uh, contract is a fixed term and expires in about six months, I can't afford not to, to get a job really pretty soon. So until, until I do my Twitter's kind of on lockdown and uh, that's just unfortunately the way it has to be until then. 
Yeah, and it's moments like these where I'm actually just so, so happy that I'm clearly not white, because if I were, <laughs> these positions that I take, I'd be called a white supremacist in a heartbeat. Um, and it's not that I talk about it too much. I think on my Twitter, I primarily focus on physics and philosophy. Um, very rarely will I ever talk about the woke brigade, I suppose. But, you know, I'm, I am a free speech absolutist, pretty much. I, I do think the left drops the ball when it comes to topics such as Islam, uh, free speech, um, definitions. And as vocal as I am about the right, or vocal against the right, you know, I don't think I agree with Ben Shapiro on a single thing. I don't think mm -hmm. I agree with, um, you know, even centrists like Brett Weinstein, I, who am I, I admire very much, Eric Weinstein. Um, I don't agree with their fetishization of Christianity or religion in general. Um, but I'm perfectly happy with following them and reading and like, listen. I, th I think Eric Weinstein's podcast, The Portal, is one of the best ones out there. I love listening to it. Yeah. And it's strange to me that I see many people on the left, as soon as they see you reading a book from the opposition, they'll immediately assume that you're on the right. And I always ask, I was reading um, uh, the new Donald Trump Jr. book, Triggered, and, you know, I was asked by my friend, because uh, I have friends that come in, and they're, um, they're pretty staunch lefties. One of them is like a Young Turks guy kind of deal. And he saw that book on my shelf, and he said, wow, I, I didn't know you were actually, you know, you leaned right. I'm like, do you only read books that agree with your opinion? Like, it's, that's so strange to me. I, I have a bunch of books. Right next to the Triggered book was Rachel Maddow's book, Blowout. But you didn't, you know, look at that book and say, wow, you're immediately a lefty. And it's strange that I do think we live in a time where people are becoming more and more divided. You know, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump at all, and I think one of the worst things that occurred when Donald Trump was elected was that even though he was against political correctness, I think he made matters worse for us. He made matters because there's this just huge now backlash, almost like a charged shot that the left was charging for quite some time, and when as soon as Donald Trump was elected, we had to release it. And so do you think that the direction that the culture is currently headed towards. Do you think maybe once Donald Trump leaves office and, you know, we get maybe a president with a blue tie on or something, do you think maybe um, we'll get to a point where we can look back on times like these and say, oh, thank God it was just a phase. It was, it's not that actually, it wasn't actually the culture changing into one that is more focused on preserving people's feelings. Um, it was just a small phase that we had. Do you think, you know, we're going to get to a, a point where you can talk about your actual viewpoints without being concerned about your job? It's a good question. I, I kind of flip-flop back and forth on a daily to sometimes monthly or even hourly basis sometimes on what I think about that. I, I don't even know what direction I would say the country is going because it, I just see it more just sort of like splitting in the middle, like it's being polarized so much. And I've mentioned on, on Twitter before how I just, I view it as this positive feedback loop that just, they're stuck in this, in this cycle where you have these far left social justice activists who are convinced that everything is institutional racism, white supremacy, uh, sexism, misogyny everywhere. And then you see someone like Donald Trump, who I sort of see as someone who was elected in response to this insanity and, and this PC culture so Donald Trump comes, you know, to power. And then instead of the left being self-reflective and being like, okay, this is in response to us, they just see this as more evidence that they're correct and that 
they they're going to double down on the fact that white supremacy and sexism is taking over and so they're going to go further to that degree and then now the right i think is probably going to want someone who's similar similarly you know like trump who's going to put it to their faces even a, you know even more than trump did or you know maybe in the, in the similar vein so yeah, i i don't know how it's going to how it's going to wash out because there needs to be something that just breaks that positive feedback loop of insanity. I just see it as a as sort of a spiral that we're kind of caught in. Um, the only way I think we can get out of it is because I do think, and if you've looked at like the hidden tribes test, I've taken that before. It's sort of like a political compass test, but it's more of like what political tribe are you in? Oh, I really? It, yeah, yeah. It's pretty comprehensive, and I, I thought it was, did a pretty good job. Um, and it breaks the society down. I think there's like eight or ten or something different tribes. And this this far left activist, the um, was only about eight percent of the left. Oh no kidding! And I wasn't included in that. I was, you know, a couple couple over, still definitely on the left, but not. I think not definitely in the the leftist activist one. And so I do think it is a minority view. It's a minority view in the country as a whole, for sure. And it's even a minority view on the left. There's just a lot of people who are being silent about this or they're, they equate social justice with civil rights. You know, in their mind, they hear social justice and they just say, like, oh, it's synonymous with civil rights. They don't realize the ideological shift that's actually taking place in there. But I think sort of as people on the left become sort of more awakened to the fact that social justice movement is not just a natural outgrowth of the civil rights movement. This is different entirely. You know, they have a different sort of uh, epistemology behind their, their, their ideas and the way that their vision for society. And I think the more this gets exposed, you know, the more we have people denying the existence of male and female, um, you know, if, if this turns into the Olympics and you see more trans women beating women, you know, on, in their sports and, and taking away, uh, you know, gold medals or any medals or even any any place from females, there's going to be a backlash against that. And so I, I think that once sort of a, uh, a certain quorum is reached of, I guess, societal awareness, mainly on the left, I think the right's sort of aware of the insanity that's going on. Um, but it, we just need more people on the left to be sort of cognizant that this is a different thing entirely. Don't just go along with it because they are voting Democrat and they they are ostensibly for gay rights and all these things that you that you like because there's just a fundamental shift in the way that they're actually approaching these problems that people aren't really registering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's I think just to awaken more people on the left to the fact that this is different. That's the only way that we're going to be able to sort of actually shift the society in a way that's you know, break the spiral as I see it. Yeah. And you brought up a good point up there, a that, point um, there that um, the people that adopt the people these that adopt hard these left hard viewpoints, viewpoints, they are in the minority. There really aren't that many people out there that actually hold such radical views, but they have so much institutional power that they can change the course of the way that the left is perceived. And, you know, I'm a big fan of David Pakman, who, who has a show called The David Pakman Show. He's a staunch lefty. But I do, I, you know, I, I think this is one of the things that he doesn't recognize that he made a video on on the regressive left a while back, but he, he doesn't seem to um, hold them to the same standard that he holds the far right to. And, you know, and Sam Harris brought, brings this up quite often, is that, 
you know, and, and he even retweeted an, an article about this, where the people that you would expect um, to just be labeled as crazies, to not be viewed intellectually serious, they're the ones that are infesting the social sciences. I think, what is it, 30% um, of social scientists consider themselves Marxist, which I don't think there's a problem with that if you consider yourself a Marxist, but when you have such a high percentage of people within a specific academic discipline abiding themselves to the same exact viewpoint, there's going to be a problem there. There's, there needs to be viewpoint diversity, and Jonathan Haidt uh, wrote about this wonderfully in his book, The Coddling of the American Mind, um, I'm sure anyone listening to this already knows who Jonathan Haidt is, a psychologist at NYU, I think. Um, but he's great, and he talks about this, and he talks about the current social justice movement where even though there does tend to be a general liberal trend when it comes to social values, and Stephen Pinker also talks about this, what we're seeing today, as you said, is different. It's not going by the same trajectory that the previous liberal movements were going by. This, it, It's like liberal, 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 but then there's a sharp spike that occurred. And so he attributes this to helicopter parenting that might have started, I think it was like in 1984 when those two kids were abducted and murdered, and then that's when the uh, missing milk carton kids started coming out. Mm -hmm. And I think there could be some truth to that. And then something also that we could, you know, if you, you want to finish something up for, um, right now on this topic, feel free to do so. But a good way to segue this conversation into another area of interest that we both have, which is atheism and secularism, is that some people on the right have argued that the drop in religiosity, the drop in religious institutions and the social cohesion that would be brought about by religion is causing this increase in social justice movements because social justice movements are very similar to religion. So do you think there's any truth to that claim? And also, if you want to finish off uh, anything, feel free to do so. Yeah. So I, I do think, I think there's some truth to the claim that, you know, there's a vacuum of of religion or whatever on the, the secular left, or I, I kind of look at it more in terms of systems of belief that create meaning, I guess is sort of the way I like to look at it. Um, but I don't, I don't buy the narrative completely because um, as James Lindsay has been posting and I've seen a lot more things, you're starting to see sort of this wokeness, this, you know, the applied postmodernism, you know, the whole, uh, that sort of ideology, that epistemology, that's, that's showing up in religious congregations as well. Um, it's taken a little longer to do it. I think the left is probably more susceptible to these, uh, these sort of secular versions of meaning making just because they're just, they're not religious. They don't already have a system of belief, like if you're a Christian or Catholic or, you know, Muslim or something, you already have these sort of built-in systems of meaning-making. And so I see them as probably being less likely to immediately take up these these postmodern religious-type narratives. Um, but they're definitely not immune to it. Like, there's there's some competition for meaning-making going on. Uh, and so I think it's the left is more likely to sort of just, like, take it up quickly. But I see it more of just sort of a foundational problem where these this sort of postmodern ideas um, are sort of happening beneath everyone's feet at the same time. It's just kind of being taken up in some communities more rapidly than others. Uh, that's the best way I think I can, the, the, the kind of way I see it going on. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, especially since a lot of the values that social justice advocates holds are at odds with a lot of values that religion practices. And it's funny because I generally tend to be more critical of um, liberal interpretations of scripture than I do of right-wing interpretations of scripture. Scripture, Because I would say that, you know, in order to view any Abrahamic text with a liberal lens, in a, you know, in a way that you could view Jesus as a social revolutionary who is also a feminist, or you could view Muhammad as the same thing, I think you have to have an inaccurate diagnosis of how society was back then. I don't think it's as intellectually honest as the literal interpretation of it would be. And so in my religious studies class um, at university, it's when I started talking to my professor at the end of the quarter, he was actually shocked to find out um, that I wasn't a right-wing conservative. He's like, I, I could have sworn you were on the right, like based on how critical you were of everyone in that class. I was like, well, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not, but it, I, I just think they're at least more honest. And, you know, I do think there is, I, I, I agree with you completely that it might be part of the equation. Um, I think another part of the equation is this sort of sense where people feel the need to be special. And I don't mean that in a derogatory, you know, snowflake kind of way that uh, right-wing people would sort of imagine. I think there is a genuine biological need, and you're a biologist, you can correct me on this, where we feel like we need to feel that we have value, significant value. We're important in society, and we're not just like everybody else. I think that might contribute to why people are in love with this new uh, pronouns thing and gender thing where they can establish themselves as something unique, as against the grain. I think that could also be part of the equation. But it's, and I, I think the largest part of the equation would probably be Jonathan Haidt's diagnosis of helicopter parenting where um, children are being more cuddled and more sheltered and this is causing them to view ideas more as an incurable virus rather than as pathogens that mm -hmm. we could actually inoculate ourselves against. I think that's probably the largest part of the equation. But it's definitely a multivaried one. And it's not so simple as to say that, yeah, drop in religion, that's what this is going to get, so therefore we need to um, bring Jesus back into schools. Um, I don't think that's the case. So, and, I, and, I get, and again, we can shift uh, this conversation out of secularism, why not? Yeah. Um, I just want to interject real quick, but it's always been funny to me that you get the religious people saying that you know, look how crazy these social justice words are. They're just like a religion. Well, to me, that's just like, aren't they kind of like dunking on themselves in a way yeah. too? Like, this is like, okay, so you're you're doing it now too. Like, I see both of you as doing the same thing, but in just in different different ways. Mm -hmm. And people in the religious right, they can identify that as like, well, shouldn't that cause some self-reflection <laughs> to the religious right who's calling out this religious movement on the left? Mm -hmm. that's, that's something I can't get over. It's like, you're both crazy. Like, what do you? what's going on here? Yeah, it's fine. And they'll, they'll do the same thing with faith. Where uh, well, you have faith in scientists. I'm like, well, you're admitting then that faith is a bad thing. So yeah. It, it, yeah, it's strange. So what got you interested in atheism? I, I think I remember hearing you say in a podcast that it was Richard Dawkins that sort of influenced you into becoming an evolutionary biologist. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And would yeah. you say the so same I, thing about I, atheism? Yeah, I mean, I got into just thinking about questions on, on God and stuff because I remember just way back when I was maybe my late teens, it's getting into conversations. I was, I was, I was raised as non-religious, but I, I don't say I was raised as an atheist because we, my family just never talked about 
atheism. So it's, they just, I was never told God didn't exist. I was never told it did exist. I was just a very neutral household, um, which I think was kind of good because I'd have, I had some religious friends who were talking about God and they were, you know, denying evolution. And I didn't know much about evolution or religious arguments at the time, but it all just, I mean, their, their arguments just sort of didn't make sense to me. And so that kind of got me into just kind of looking into evolution more and looking into arguments about God and against God. Uh, I was getting into Carl Sagan a lot at the time. I was looking at his whole Cosmos series. Um, and then I remember there was something that came out in, I think it was Time Magazine, and it was sort of a back and forth debate between Richard Dawkins and, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Francis Collins, I think it was, oh, who's the, the, of the um, World Health Organization or NIH or something. And so he was that he's that was the head of the Human Genome Project, and he's just a known like born again Christian, um, but who's also a very good scientist as well. And I remember just looking at that back and forth, and thinking that Dawkins just really schooled him on that whole thing, and that it was, it was a, such a fascinating conversation. And then I got to think I read some of Carl Sagan's The Demon Haunted World, which is a sort of a primer for skepticism in general. He debunked a lot of, you know, like. Uh, astrology and claims that aliens have landed and that was a really good primer just for critical thinking and then uh, I got the god delusion like the when it just came out and devoured that kind of got into the whole four horsemen of new atheism thing Harris Dawkins Hitchens Dennett that whole thing went to some atheist conferences because uh, I was interested in evolutionary biology and atheism at that time and I was online arguing against creationists and intelligent design people so I was I was big into that whole new atheist movement back in the day. Uh, yeah, so that's how I sort of got into secularism. Um, because back then, that's when, you know, there were a lot of cases where they were trying to get creationism taught as, you know, teach both sides in, in, in the classroom. Uh, and there were a lot of court cases that were coming up, and it was definitely a threat to evolutionary biology and what I thought was rigorous science. And so I was very outspoken against what I felt was you know, this incursion of faith-based thinking and religious thinking into the sciences. And then that kind of died down after a while. And then now the attacks, as I said before, are coming kind of from the left. And I see this modern denial of sex differences. And, you know, th this is all very similar in the sense that I see it as an attack on evolution. When people are, you know, there's a lot of blank slate people who don't think that there's any evolved differences, not just in the bodies of males or females, which is ridiculous, but you know, things like personality traits between males and females either. They just think that, you know, evolution only took place from the neck down and, you know, the brains are just completely blank slates and they're just molded by socialization um, from growing up. And to me, that's even more evangelical and religious in nature and faith-based than, than intelligent design and creationism. And I actually see these new movements as being potentially even more destructive to society in a big way too, because I think they, they kind of touch on more, um, more issues of, of human rights in a way that this sort of intelligent design doesn't really like. So if people started believing in intelligent design more, I don't see how that's really going to impact human rights in the same way that denying sex differences are, uh, you know, it's going to impact females for instance. Um, so I'm me, I'm just sticking by my same guns of speaking out against these, non-scientific sort of religious faith-based core arguments. And I, I feel like I've 
gotten used to seeing a lot of these, uh, you know, these logical fallacies from arguing with creationists and intelligent design people so much. Mm -hmm. And I just see these exact same patterns of thought now coming from the left. And I'm just doing the same thing I've always been doing, speaking out against attacks to, to science. Um, but now it's coming from a different side and it's kind of more precarious because it's a side that I'm ostensibly on and I'm trying to get careers in. But um, as you mentioned, if you say, you know, you had your book triggered and everyone thought you were a right winger. Well, now apparently if I am arguing with people online about whether or not males and females are different, now I'm considered a right winger, even though I almost check every single box on the left politics wise, except for maybe I, I don't hate capitalism. Um, you know, yeah. that's, that's, about, that's about the only right wing thing. And even then, I'm still not like free market everything. It's like, I'm still for like regulated markets. I don't even know how I've been painted as some, some far right person. Um, even though I almost check every liberal box I can imagine. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what makes it almost impossible to have these conversations where because people are so tribalistic by nature, they'll immediately paint you as the other if they just disagree with 5% of the things that you guys yeah. um, talk about. You could agree with, well, what is this called? Like the bi the bias of small differences or something? Um, yeah, narcissism of small differences. Oh, yeah, so, yeah there you go. Um, and it makes conversations almost impossible because you know, I'm pretty much on the same boat as you. I tick the boxes on the left almost nine times out of ten. And exactly like you, the only difference would be that I don't hate capitalism. I'm probably more on like the centrist Steven Pinker board when it comes to capitalism. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it's awful to talk to the, to talk about this with people that I'm good friends with or even vocalize it online because you'll immediately be, be attacked by the pronouns people. You know, Sam Harris has been um, accused by this one guy named Essence of Thought uh, that we... I made a video on it. Oh, shoot. I don't know what his pronouns are, actually. I'm sorry. But yeah, I don't, I don't know... Um, I made a video about this guy or this person. Um, uh, I'm not being an asshole and misgender. I, I I don't remember. I think on their YouTube channel, they go by all the pronouns. So I think they go by they and whatever. I don't think they care. Okay. Um, yeah, they, they, they talked about Sam Harris giving in to the Christian right because of his viewpoints on um, transgenderism and gender dysphoria and whether or not they should be in, uh, participating in sports against biological women. And it's like, so as soon as you disagree with the established dogma that you've given yourself, that you've that your side has constructed, you're either on the left side or on the right side, and it's so horrifying that there's just there can't be nuance in this conversation. Uh, conversation there can't be any benign difference in thought. Everything always has to be weaponized, and it's scary that someone even as pretty much radically left as Eric Weinstein and Brett Weinstein will be viewed as right-wingers because of this. I mean, I, you know, I make, they're not on the Douglas Murray side, where Douglas Murray, who, who is politically on the right, um, also recently published a book called The Madness of Crowds about every one of these topics. It's an interesting read. I recommend everyone read it. Um, but, you know, it's horrifying to see people place themselves in these tribes, in these camps, where... And even people on the right that claim to be for freedom of speech, that claim to want to have honest discussions and honest conversations, I think they're using a lot of the same tactics, whether they see it or not. You know, uh, I like listening to Ben Shapiro. I listen to the Ben Shapiro show, and he's one of the people that always talks about bringing civility back into these debates. But I don't think you're really helping your case when you're selling mugs that say leftist tears 
or when Dave Rubin consistently talks about having civil discourse but refuses to have people like Sam Cedar or David Pakman on. And I think, you know, going back to whether or not we're actually going to get to a point where we, don't, we no longer have to be concerned about this, we can talk about our viewpoints without fear of academic repercussions, I honestly have no idea at this point. Because even though these crazies are a minority, they're a very vocal minority, and they carry so much institutional power, much more than they deserve to be holding. And so, and I agree with you that, yeah, there are religious undertones among all of these things. I don't think it's a coincidence that 99% of the time, whenever someone gets mad about one of my tweets, when it comes to, you know, the social justice left, they have pronouns in their bio. It's almost like a badge of honor or, you know, the sort of yeah, virtue signal. Yeah, it, 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 it's... It's so weird, and it's horrifying because I'm barely starting on my academic on my academic journey right now. I'm at the barely. If you start going to conferences, I mean, I go to conferences now, and you get a name tag, and everyone is now putting their pronouns on their name tags. Oh no! You know, it's always just like an optional thing. But if you're the only one who doesn't do it, then it's just like, okay, that's that's becoming like a statement now. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I'm just, I go to ecology and evolution meetings and I'd say 90% of people or more have pronouns on there. No kidding, they, really? Uh, not so much the older people, but definitely people who are, I guess, under under 40, you see it a whole lot more. Older professors, not so much. And I've heard of conferences too, where they, they give like little stickers and they at the door and they say like, oh, here's your, like, what's your pronoun? Like, we give you, we put a sticker on you. Where you actually have to then be like, oh no, thanks if you don't want to to do any of that, and then so then that puts you in a position where it's like, oh, why don't you want to put the pronoun? You know, yeah. Trans one of my one of my English classes, uh, I had to. She was the, the teacher was passing out little um, index cards, and you're supposed to put your name and your pronouns on there, and then hand it in. Um, and it's funny because some of the it, usually the people who speak passive aggressively against the hard left have been my physics professors. That so that was always interesting to me, and of course it's always the social scientists that are completely on board with it, and um, yeah, I, I've never, <laughs> I, I don't really go to any academic conferences. I've gone to a few for APS physics, but that's just as a student. I think I think physics is the next, the next victim. Have you, have you read the whole like white empiricism paper by that one lady who came out recently with the the article criticizing how the racism about in physics about string theory and all that stuff. Have you seen that? Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the thing on quantum papers. That was uh, James Lindsay was the one who was um, yeah, yeah. talking about it. Yeah. Oh my God. I, I honestly have no idea what, what, what's what's going to mm -hmm. happen in here. But um, a good way, to, I think, to end off this conversation is to talk about your academic fields because if, you know you mentioned before Richard Dawkins was one of your um, one of the people that inspired mm -hmm. you to become an evolutionary biologist, and I think you study insects, like social behaviors in insects. Is it? I do. Yeah. So, so I guess just talk a bit about your research, your current research, and what it is that got you so interested in evolutionary biology. Yeah, so it was, so I guess it was mainly Carl Sagan's Cosmos series that got me sort of just into evolution immediately in the beginning because he had a few episodes. It wasn't just on, the Cosmos was very broad. It wasn't all astrophysics, even though Carl Sagan was you know, an astrophysicist, but he had many episodes on evolution as well. And that always just blew me away. And then when I started getting into Richard Dawkins, 
Uh, he obviously is an evolutionary biologist, and he has a book called uh, The Ancestor's Tale, which is basically written as sort of this backwards journey from now into the past until, you know, the very origin of life. So you meet your your ancestors at every node all the way back until the beginning of life, and then he dis- he discusses what those ancestors were like, the environments they were in, and then what led them to evolve in these situations. And it was just, it's a, I think it's my favorite book of his. It's just a complete masterpiece. And then I got into, from reading him, he always talked about, he had these intellectual disagreements with this guy named Stephen Jay Gould on the topic of, it's called group selection, where, where what's the target of evolution? Does evolution only target individuals or genes, as Richard Dawkins would say, or can entire groups be an object of selection? Are there group level traits that are selected for? Or are group level traits just sort of an emergent property of, uh, of individual selection? And so that kind of got me thinking about social behavior, group selection versus individual type selection. I read a lot of Stephen Jay Gould too, because he wrote a bunch of natural history essays. Uh, he's got, I think, 10 or more, this compilation of natural history essays. And I just remember kept going back and forth. I'd read Dawkins and he would seemingly dunk on Stephen Jay Gould about group selection. Then I'd go and read Stephen Jay Gould and I would see him dunk on Dawkins. I kept switching back and forth of this whole group selection debate of who I thought had the best arguments. And so that's sort of what got me into wanting to study social behavior, like ants, bees, wasps, termites, just any, any social behavior in general, not particularly just for social insects. Uh, so that was, I was really into that when I, when I went to back to school as a biology major. And then, so I knew I wanted to study social behavior to some degree when I got to grad school. So I looked for a bunch of grad schools that were doing it. I thought I'd probably end up working with honeybees or something, maybe even ants, because those are kind of the more, most prevalent organism that people are studying social behavior in. But then I found a lab that was fairly new and it was at the University of Pittsburgh, actually, it's where I started grad school. And it was a lab that studied uh, personality in social spiders. So it looked at both the individual behaviors of social spiders, and then it also looked at the emergent collective behavior of groups. So you can actually look at personality at different levels. So um, personality is basically just defined as like consistent differences between individuals and the way that they behave over time. So it's pretty straightforward. Like people can be more aggressive. You know, you know, humans have personalities. Dogs and cats, if you have. You know, if you have more than one dog, you realize that, like, yeah, they behave differently, and they're pretty consistent in there with the way they behave. Some dogs are aggressive, some are docile, that type of thing. Uh, but groups, too, also can have differences in the way that they consistently behave over time. And so this lab was looking at both quantifying the levels of individual behavioral variation, how that's linked to collective behavior, and then how collective behavior is selected and how it actually contributes to the, the success or failure of the entire society as a whole. Um, so that's sort of what I got into, studying social spiders. And then I also, I kind of pursued two dissertations side by side. Uh, my lab eventually moved to, uh, to Santa Barbara because my advisor took a job there and I moved with him. Uh, but then I, al- I also now look at, um, well, I'll finish with the spider thing real quick. So with the spiders, I specifically am looking at what determines their collective behavior. So I can I can get a bunch of different colonies of spiders I test the individual behavior of every spider in the group, and then I can kind of create artificial societies, like artificial colonies of known behavioral composition. And then I can see how their behavioral composition sort of influences their collective behavior and things like how well they forage, how well they're taking care of young, how well they're repairing their webs, 
colony defense and things like that. Um, and then I'm specifically looking at them in relation to um, colony defense, really, and and whether or not if I can if I can add sort of environmental fear in these situations, what does that do in terms of uh, influencing the collective behavior of societies? So you can test these colonies in the lab, and you can say like you know, these bold colonies they attack with more individuals than you know colonies that have more shy individuals. Um, but then I've I guess what I've been working on with them and discovered is that if you if you expose them to like chemical cues of a known predator, then that basically just erases all of the colony level differences you see between these colonies. They they become fearful and they they no longer have this emergent behavior even towards prey that they would normally eat uh, and that they that are, aren't threatening to them. So even if they're just in an environment that has you know potential predators, uh, they're going to be kind of um, handicapped because they're going to be more fearful in contexts where they shouldn't be fearful. It would be beneficial to actually be really bold and attack prey items. And so I guess uh, my work there is just showing that we can't really just look at the personalities in nature and, and be so sure that this is, this is how, this is an innate part of their behavior because you need to take in the environment, uh, the, the whole, the context in which their the colony is in. So if they're in an environment that has a lot of predators, well, that's going to be influencing their collective behavior. So you can't really compare uh, colonies at different sites because you need to quantify their environment uh, first and foremost. Um, so that's sort of my social spider stuff. And then I also look at paper wasps, um, and I'm specifically looking at how the queen behavior, so the, the personalities of individuals that found colonies, um, single the single queens that come out in the spring to, you know, to start a new colony from scratch, how their personality traits influence both the personality, collective behavioral traits of their colonies, and how their colonies uh, persist and survive and, and um, grow in nature, basically. So that's sort of the, the two areas I'm focusing on. I also kind of work with ants now on um, collective decision-making when I add fear to their environment, so sort of intersection of personality and cognition um, and decision-making on a, on a collective, collective level. So that's sort of... In a nutshell, what I'm doing. Um, are those um, pictures of wasps, wasps in the background that you have there? Or, uh, <laughs> so all those, so they're actually, that was a gift when I graduated, um, when I got my PhD. And those are the three systems that I worked on. My advisor had these um, watercolor things commissioned for me, amazingly. He spent a fortune on them. But on the far, let's see, look that one. I think is the is paper wasps. <laughs> that one in the middle there is the acorn ants that I studied, and then the one over there has the social spiders, the species that I studied. Wow! So that's pretty damn cool. nerdy. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right, so we're cool. we're passing. I think about an hour and five minutes right now. So um, I want to thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I was surprised when you even yeah. responded to me. And again, I've been a huge mm -hmm. fan of your work. People can find you. At Colin, at Swipe Right, right? That's your Twitter. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Any other social media that you want to plug? Instagram, Snapchat, or Facebook, whatever. Um, you know, I really, I'm only kind of active on Twitter, and even now, I'm, I'm, I'm still active, but my my account is private. If you do want to follow me, though, still send me a request, and I'll uh, I'll approve people that you know don't look like they're potentially out for my job. So. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> so, you, uh, you want to approve yeah. people with pronouns in their bio? <laughs> You know, it's, it's it's really funny because the people I approve now are either just like clearly like right wing major Trump supporters, as mm -hmm. people that would never like care about what I'm doing. But then it makes me think of like, well, what am I? I'm, I'm creating this 
environment where I'm just only adding like far right people on my Twitter now. Like that can't be good. Yeah. But when I did my first video, when I uploaded my first video on, um, I was defending the free speech in the during the whole Sargon of the COD situation with Patreon. And I got a good amount of subscribers. I think that video got like a little over 200 views and I got a good amount of subscribers. And I was looking at the subscription list of the people that were subscribed to me and it was just pure like Stephen Molyneux, you know, right-wing right people. And I'm like, oh, you're not going to like my stuff, I think, after this, this video. <laughs> yeah, I've, I, I sometimes I scroll through my Twitter feed to my followers and just see like, what what is my demographic there? And it's either like people on the, the right, a lot of MAGA people, then there's you know, gender critical, radical feminists who are following me a lot because they're very much against the whole um, trans ideology, gender, gender feminism type thing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the political centrists that are open to conversation. The only group that doesn't follow me in any significant numbers is the pronouns in their bio people. That's pretty much the only group that's that I never see there. So, yeah. Well, yeah. again, thank you very much for coming on. You're the soul of charity for even thinking about it. So. <laughs> Yeah, if you ever want to do it again in the future, let me know. I'd be happy to do it. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, this was an absolutely great conversation. I was um, really privileged to have you on. Great, intelligent guy. Everyone follow this guy. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for taking a listen to this podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to have a conversation with Colin Wright. I highly recommend you following him on social media at Swipe Right. I think he's a very important voice in academia. If you like listening to this podcast, be sure to subscribe and follow me on Twitter at Latent Physicist. Thanks for taking the time to watch this video, and as always, I hope to see you in the next.